changing your life one story at a time. This is the Chicken Soup for the Soul podcast with Editor-in-Chief Amy Newmark. Hey, it's Amy Newmark, and it's Friend Friday on the Chicken Soup for the Soul podcast. And today, I am so excited to introduce you to one of our writers, Shannon Stocker. She has a story in Chicken Soup for the Soul, Dreams and the Unexplainable, and it is one of the most remarkable stories that we have ever published. So, Shannon, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. I'm happy to be here. So you have such an interesting background, and I want to tell everybody how your adult life started, which was at Northwestern University, where you were majoring in radio and TV and film. And then somehow you ended up at the University of, I'm not going to pronounce this right, Louisville? Close enough. Louisville. It's it's one syllable as you can get. Yeah. (laughs) Louisville. Louisville. Uh, You ended up there getting your master's in science in anatomical sciences and neurobiology. And then you also completed four years of medical school. So do you actually have an MD? I do. I did not go on to residency. I just graduated from medical school because my 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 medical symptoms really became severe enough my last year of medical school that I was forced to, and I'm putting air quotes around this, postpone my residency. That is really a shame. My daughter is a third-year resident, and I saw her go through undergrad and then, you know, the torturous four years of medical school. And it's, well, you probably don't think it's sad that you didn't go on for residency because residency is basically (laughs) like a really tough experience. But anyway, so, all right. So tell us then what happened that caused this bizarre medical problem that you had? Well, my last year of medical school, I started having some very unusual symptoms where my shoulder and my ear would pull together in spasms. 24 hours a day. And my uh, husband and I started looking for answers as to what that what could be causing that spasm. And at the same time, I was having some pretty significant pain in my right arm. And we saw a number of physicians, most of whom uh, seemed to think that initially it was either some form of spasmodic torticollis is what they were calling it, this um, the spasm of the muscle of, of my neck, um, or uh, some who just outright felt that it was in my head. And uh, eventually a small tumor was found in my upper right arm. Uh, per MRI, it appeared to be small, but when they removed it, it was actually about two and a half inches long and it ran the length of the nerve, but it was a very uh, unusual type of nerve tumor. So it, they they took it out um, and my symptoms became worse instead of getting better, which is not what we expected. And that is what took us down this seven-year trail of trying to figure out what was happening, why my pain was so bad um, and wouldn't improve. Yeah, and I know that by the time 2007 came along, you were covered in ulcers, you weighed 85 pounds, you were largely confined to a wheelchair, and you were really on the verge of death. So what was the diagnosis at that point? Well, by 2005, I had been misdiagnosed by over 30 physicians here in the States with diagnoses ranging from spasmodic torticollis to multiple sclerosis. 
And um, when I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, I took Copaxin injections into my abdomen and my thighs, which caused this disease to spread. And so we went to Mayo in Rochester and through a barrage of testing there, they wound up giving me the formal diagnosis of RSD. It's largely known as RSD by the patients, which is reflex sympathetic dystrophy. But in the medical community, it's known more as CRPS or chronic regional pain syndrome, which is a disorder of the autonomic nervous system. So I looked it up and it says it often is the result of surgery. And of course, you had had that benign tumor removed back in 2000. So I'm kind of surprised that nobody tied your pain to the removal of the tumor. We were too. We were too. And it was even more surprising because we had been advocating for this diagnosis since at least uh, 2003, I'd say. But people were telling us that this wasn't it. But back in 2003, largely my only symptom at that point was pain. So the discoloration would come and go. The swelling would come and go. The ulcers hadn't started yet. Um, a lot of the more severe symptoms hadn't yet begun. So it was very frustrating. It was a very frustrating period of time. So to get the diagnosis was fantastic um, in, in a way because at least we had an answer. But it was problematic because here in the States, there was, there was no hope. Um, my husband was told by some physicians to put me in permanent care. Other physicians recommended that my right arm be amputated. We were given, we were given no hope. So we, we left the country. Yeah, so that's what you wrote about in your story in Chicken Soup for the Soul, Dreams and the Unexplainable. And I was fascinated by the fact that you voluntarily went into a medically induced coma using ketamine, which I know is a typical anesthesia drug. Yes. Here in the States, it's still used on occasion in pediatrics. It's more widely used really by the veterinary population, um, but it's a very old anesthetic and um, it has been recently shown to be helpful with, with other conditions as well. But here in the States, the coma itself is not an approved, an FDA approved protocol or treatment for RSD or CRPS, which is a shame because the, the results that they've had outside the country have been fantastic. I watched a TV news interview that you had posted somewhere that I found, and it showed a number of women with RSD going through this experimental treatment in Mexico at this very nice-looking medical facility in Monterey. So you went down to Mexico. You basically lay down, and you knew you were going into a coma. What was that like? And did you have any recollection of the coma? Did you have any cognitive function while you were in the coma? Or was it just like being under anesthesia, and then you just woke up after five days? It's funny because when you ask the, the first question, it gives me chills to think about when I actually was induced into the coma because I remember that day very clearly. I didn't have any fear because I didn't feel I had any options. And for me, this felt like truly a moment of hope. This was the moment that I felt could turn my life around or give me a life back. And we actually have, we recorded a lot of the, my experience in Monterey 
so that other patients who are considering going through this experimental treatment would have a reference that we didn't have. And so we actually have the moment that my husband kissed me goodbye before the coma, and it's it's heart-wrenching. It makes me cry just even to think about it. So I remember that day, but I don't remember any of the coma itself. When they stopped the ketamine on day five and extubated me as they had planned, I had a grand mal seizure and they ended up having to re-intubate me and sedate me on propofol for an additional three days because my vitals were very unstable. And during that period of time, that's when the hallucinations began. It took me a while to recognize people that I knew, to recognize my husband, um, to know where I was. It took me several days to get to that place. But the hallucinations, unfortunately, those I remember pretty clearly. Oh, wow. And those were not really part of the ketamine therapy. That was an add-on because of your bad reaction coming out of the coma. That's an expected reaction to ketamine. When you get ketamine in doses that, uh, that the patients need when they are going into this, this induced coma, the doses are so high that they know that the patients are going to suffer from hallucinations when, they, when the coma is stopped. So um, we all know that it's coming, um, but they have, to, they have to tie you down to the bed and, because sometimes patients can get violent. And it's, uh, it's just not anything, even as somebody tells you about it, it's not something that you can emotionally or mentally prepare for, which is one of the reasons that, that my husband took some video while we were down there. Wow. Okay. So after the whole thing, you finally woke up and were back to being yourself. And where was the pain? When I first woke up, I had no pain, which was incredible. Uh, it had been years since I had had no pain. And moving forward, it I had to, to go through many months of uh, physical therapy, and um, I had to go through seven ketamine boosters. And each time I have another surgical procedure for the rest of my life, I will need to have ketamine to prevent another flare. Um, so it's, it's something that I continue to deal with. I actually still have a couple of tumors right now. We're looking at the possibility of needing surgery for something else in my right arm. Every, every problem I've had has been in my right arm, uh, this year. But as long as we go down the path, um, with ketamine, as long as we're careful and we continue to be smart about our decisions, I, I have a lot of optimism. So it really rebooted your nervous system so that this pain sequence, this cycle of pain would be stopped in its tracks. Yes. That's the best way that we've been able to describe this to to anybody is imagine when you're, when you get the little beach ball on your computer and it stops functioning and you have to shut the whole thing off. That's what this coma did for me with patients who have suffered an injury whether it be from surgery or some other type of injury, their, their brains don't recognize pain signals correctly anymore. And it becomes this cascade over time. If, it's, if that signal isn't interrupted, um, every sensation, light touch, for example, comes across as being an excruciating, searing pain. And RSD is actually rated as being the most painful condition known to man 
with bone cancer and natural childbirth falling just below that. So it's just the very, very light touch can become this increasing, this, this horrible pain. So ketamine comes in, it interrupts certain receptors in your brain. They're called NMDA receptors. It interrupts these receptors and it gives your brain and your body a chance to reboot. That is terrific. Now, you wrote a story for us about something pretty miraculous that happened while you were in the hospital, besides this cure that came from ketamine rebooting your system. And that is your encounter with a woman named Marcella. Can you tell us about that? Absolutely. When I was in the coma, and right when I had the the had been extubated and had the grand mal seizure, Dr. Cantu was the name of the physician who was running the the coma trial. And he motioned for my husband and his family to come over to this room that they had all called the bad news room because it was where the door was closed and people came out crying. And that's where he let them know that I'd had this seizure. And Greg was very upset and he had been maintaining a a website to keep friends and family apprised uh, back in the States. And he was out trying to put down his entry for the day, trying to type it out when one gentleman came over and put his arm around him and said, que paso amigo. And they sort of both spoke back and forth in broken English and broken Spanish. And Greg told them my story. And uh, this woman named Marcella was part of the family. And she came over and asked my husband, do you mind if I pray for your wife? And he kind of laughed and said, no, we welcome all help right now. And so she said she was going to come back that evening and she did. And when she came back, she had a small vial of holy water that her uh, great grandmother had had blessed by the Pope in Rome many years earlier. And she asked if she could go back and sprinkle that around my body and of course, he gave his blessing and she went back and he said she was back in the room for several hours before she came back out and said to him, you may think I'm crazy, but uh, God tells me Shannon will be fine. And next year she's going to give birth to a baby girl. And uh, there's actually even a little bit more to the story. I, I couldn't fit in chicken soup there. I, I wish I could have. That was about her name. Um, because she said, you need to name her some version of Mary because it will be healing for her. And Greg kind of hugged her and nodded and thought, this this poor crazy woman, <laughs> she has no idea what we've been through and how sick I'd been for so many years. Um, but she was so sweet. And when I woke up from the coma, uh, her whole family just really took us under their wings. And they took us around to local cathedrals and places where we should eat and they really took care of us for the for the following weeks while I was recovering. So that was April of 07. That December I found out I was pregnant and I called we called Monterey for the first time since leaving and the only daughter who was fluent in English at the time answered the phone and we said Andrea is that you and She said, Greg, Shannon, is this you? My mother just told me. She just told me you're pregnant. And uh, we we hadn't told anybody yet and just looked at each other and and burst into tears. I'm sitting here with my mouth open. That is amazing. So now you have two children. 
And you yes. you uh, worked for 12 years as a financial consultant for physicians, so you stayed in that medical field. But now I know that you are more of a stay-at-home mom and you're pursuing your original interests in singing and songwriting and, and being a musician. And I also was reading your blog. And so now that you're a writer, I wanted yes. you to give us a little a little piece of that. And I saw something very interesting in your blog that I wanted to ask you about. Since this is the end of January and everybody's pretty much giving up on their January 1st New Year's resolution by now, tell us about your new strategy for New Year's resolutions. To make new month's resolutions because a year is is too much to bite off, in my opinion, at least for me it is. And I think for anybody who goes to the gym, um, you probably have seen that and a lot of other people too, based on how busy the gym is every January and how empty it is every December. It's just, it's a lot to say, well, this is what I'm going to accomplish this year. So instead, I like to be able to, at the beginning of every month, say, this is, this is what I want to accomplish this month. This is where I'm going to hold myself accountable. And I've, I tried to do that all last year and it seemed to work pretty well for me and I'm going to stick with it again this year. And I just told my husband yesterday, this month, I want to write another 5,000 words in my memoir. That's really what I want to do. Well, we're looking forward to reading that memoir. And I'm excited about the fact that February starts in a few days and it's the shortest month of the year. So if you're coming up with a challenging resolution for a month, you know, like you're going to eat vegetarian for a month or you're going to exercise every single day for a month, February would be the month to do it. Yeah. <laughs> That's the truth. Well, Shannon, I am so excited to have talked to you today. We're going to have to talk again after your memoir comes out. And I really appreciate you coming on the podcast today. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much for including me. It really means a lot to me. Well, thanks for being part of the Chicken Soup for the Soul family. And for everybody out there listening, thank you for listening today. You can go to our website, which is chickensoup.com, to learn more about the book that Shannon's story appeared in, Chicken Soup for the Soul, Dreams and the Unexplainable. And you can learn more about Shannon and read some of her blog writing and some other interesting stuff about her at shannonstocker.com. Come back next week. We're going to have a little chat about Valentine's Day and men and gift giving. And we're going to decipher how men choose gifts and why women should give them a free pass on their choices. Ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.